We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 22 this evening, please. Matthew chapter 22. Your Bible may have this, the parable of the wedding feast. We'll just leave it with that title. It is a parable. We've gone over all the parables before. Actually, it's been over five years now since we went there. Can you remember? Can you believe that? Yeah. Um, but we come back to this one now because we're going through our series in Matthew sequentially, and we'll profit from this once again. It says in Matthew 22, verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So we have to keep that in mind. We're talking about a likeness to the kingdom of heaven here. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is not the church. We've talked about that many times. It's a different thing. All members of the church will be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but not all that are in the kingdom of heaven had been members of the church. For example, Old Testament saints, right? They were not members of any particular church, nor of the church universal. And so it's a different thing. The church and the, and, the, and the kingdom of heaven are distinct from one another. Be that as it has been in our teaching, and we understand that from a careful exposition of Scripture, we're talking about something like the kingdom of heaven. And it is this. It's like a king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, right away, this looks like a very nice thing. It's a positive thing. Arranging a marriage for your son is super. It's exciting, it's happy, it's wonderful. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, that is within the space of two verses, one of the most stark kind of shifts of, uh, of, of tone that you can find in Scripture. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. This seems to be a little bit hastily arranged, if I may so say. Uh, if the food is, uh, you know, already rotating on the spit and you're sending out invitations, like, oh boy, uh, not a whole lot of time to uh, get yourself, uh, you know, changed, showered and changed and into your Sunday best. And that will come to uh, the point later on. Uh, verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. What in the world is going on here? But this is the point of the parable. You start to remember, this is a story that the Lord has made up. This didn't happen, actually, but it's a parable that he's using to make a point like, here's some wonderful thing, and then there's this completely contrary response to it. When the, but when the king heard about it, verse 7 says, he was furious. I'd be furious too if I was the king inviting people to my son's wedding and they responded that way. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. 
Well, that doesn't seem inappropriate to my way of thinking. They were murderers. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, uh, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he, that is the, the man who was brought in, was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's start to focus on this message by asking ourselves, what does God want us to get to understand from this portion of his word? What are we to learn? What are we to put into practice? How are we to change? How should our affections be moved in this regard? Uh, There are other banquet passages in scripture. There's the parable of the foolish and wise bridesmaids. Remember those, some had trimmed their lamps and had their extra oil, others did not and they weren't ready. And then there's Mark 14, that's Matthew 25, I don't know if I said that, and then Mark 14, the parable of the great banquet, which is somewhat different than this. In in this particular parable, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a very important upcoming wedding that you are invited to attend. The story will demand you to consider some questions. Do you care about the wedding? Do you care about the king? Do you care about his son? Do you care about your own life? Those are the kinds of things that we'll draw out of this. So the story in the parable uh, is a king planned a marriage ceremony and dinner for his son. Obviously, whenever you have a wedding, you're going to have some kind of food probably, and uh, he did. The king invited a whole list of people, but the people refused to come to the wedding. They were unwilling, the text tells us, in verse number 3. Their refusal is, on the face of it, completely unreasonable. There's no reason. I mean, obviously, there's in a real wedding situation, there's going to be some people who are overseas or traveling or they have a funeral or they get sick or whatever. That's not this. This is people were just not willing to come. And I wonder if it is because they didn't like the king. They didn't like the king. We are faced today with more and more of this kind of um, interpersonal hatred. I was just listening to uh, Alan Dershowitz. He actually did a couple of interviews that I heard. In both interviews, he explained that he's been disinvited from uh, teaching at a public library about a book that he's written, his 50th book. He's also been disinvited from social functions in the place where he lives, which is a very high society kind of place. People, one time even a woman coming up to him after the party and and saying, if I knew you were here, I would not have come. I mean, talk about rude, if nothing else, but she, and as an emblematic of others, are spiteful, hateful people. Just because the guy doesn't agree with your politics doesn't mean you have to treat him like a piece of trash. But that is what we have come to today. And uh, these people, evidently, they had some brief with the king. They had some, some thing they were unhappy about. And they said, 
I'm not willing to go to that. Um, so they refused to come. Very unreasonable of them to do that. The king reinvites the same people, but uh, this time by the hand of other servants. He gives more details about the uh, preparations that he's made. We, you know, we read about the food and all that, and, and commands them to come to the wedding. He's urgent that they must come. Come. You know, you can't have much of a public celebration if you don't have any public there. People made light of the invitation, and most went on their business. They went to their farms. They went to other places. And what they did, if that was all they did, that was highly offensive and disobedient because this invitation was not from one of their peers. This invitation was the, from the king, wasn't it? I mean, when the king invites you, what do you do? You know, Let's just say that you have a president in the White House whom you like, or maybe even one you don't like may fit better, and he invites you to come and speak to him or give some advice or whatever. Are you going to ignore it? Or are you going to take advantage of that opportunity and enjoy perhaps the state dinner or whatever it is? An invitation from the king, even more so than from a president in a republic, that amounts to a command. But some of the invitees went so far as to abuse and kill the servants who brought the message of invitation. You would think that the messengers were summoning the invitees to appear before the king in a legal matter in which their lives were in jeopardy or perhaps their freedom. In fact, he was just inviting them to a joyous celebration. Why would they treat the messengers so badly? It was just a wedding invitation. <laughs> I mean, relax. But even if those messengers were insistent and their irritation factor could never rise to the level of being you know, deserving of death for inviting, strongly inviting even, people to a wedding feast. So perhaps they don't like the king. Perhaps they don't like his son. Perhaps it's like the gospel. People don't like God the Father. People don't like God the Son and they don't want to go to his wedding. I, for one, am looking forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I have the picture on my wall behind my desk. If you've been in my office there, you see that, like, it looks like infinitely long table uh, that I picture as being at that uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. And I will be glad to be in any chair at that table. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, maybe there are going to be more than one table, I suspect. But anyway, <laughs> lots of tables. Well, whatever that is, um, the king's patience runs its course and his, and his interest in justice begins to take hold. Now it's not a matter of a happy celebration. It is a matter of law and order. It is a matter of his his reputation being shamed, and so he ends up destroying the murderers and their city. Uh, evidently, a, a whole bunch of people in that city, and so it deserved to be leveled. Now, some of those he had invited are dead. Others had gone their own way, so there was no one left. Now, he tells his servants then to go out and find anyone they can so that they will have someone to celebrate with. So, you know, this is the kind of go out into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in, 
Anybody that you can find, invite them. Boy, it's just so clear. It's like a gospel invitation, isn't it? Which, by the way, the gospel invitation, remember, is not just to individual salvation. We talked about this on Sunday morning. It is to invite somebody to be properly related to the King, the Christ, the risen Savior, who is going to rule the world and be your judge. And so you come into a good relationship with that King and judge and creator and son of God and all by responding to the good news, and you will be a part of his kingdom. Um, So his invitation now is widened to include almost anyone. All were invited. And in fact, it tells us um, in verse number 10, it says, they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. You didn't have to be at a certain societal level like the upper crust, you know, like Dershowitz is in, to be involved in this uh, invitation and to receive it. Happily, many people came, and the wedding hall was filled. What an exciting time. You, you can imagine as people were, were filing in, sitting down at the tables or however that worked, talking, joking, excited, happy, talking about the wedding uh, just a, a, a blessing. The original invitees were out. The new ones were in. And, uh, you know, as it is with any kind of reception, you know, who you're waiting for. You're waiting for the, the bridal party. You're waiting for the bride and groom. You're waiting for the parents to come in, the family, those that were probably busy taking pictures or whatever. And then, you know, kind of things can get on, on the road and get moving. Well, the king arrived to the hall after his servants had assembled everyone. As he was reviewing the crowd, he found a man who was there not dressed properly. He did not have on a wedding garment. The man was invited, so we know he wasn't crashing the party. He was an invitee. But when asked why he did not dress properly, he was speechless. Now, this gives us a little clue as to what's going on. He was without excuse. He had no, you know, he couldn't say like, um, you know, I'm poor. Uh, The invitation was so urgent, I had to just come right out of the fields and I couldn't change. Um, You know, why, you know, because you might wonder, well, why is the king upset at the guy? I mean, here, you know, he had had the food and it was five minutes until it was going to be done and he's inviting people to this wedding and uh, it wasn't five minutes, really. I'm exaggerating, but you know, it's a, it was a quick thing, and he had to compel people to come to this thing. And so maybe there's something going on. What, what conservative commentators suggest, and I agree with, is that the king himself was providing the necessary garments for these people. Uh, he knew that they were working class people, probably. They needed to have a, a nice uh, suit of clothes or a nice wedding uh, suitable dress if there were a woman. And uh, he was so rich that he could do that with all the people that were invited to the wedding. Um, he unexpectedly invited people. Uh, some were traveling on the road, weren't ready for a wedding. They were, they were from out of town. The guests were hastened to the wedding and had to exchange their grubby everyday clothes for something suitable for the wedding of a king's son. The fact that the man did not have any excuse shows us that this understanding is plausible. Since he truly had no excuse, it must be that provision was made for him and he refused the provision. 
Make sense? No excuse. You know, you can't say I was poor. That, that excuse doesn't work because God, the king rather, was giving them the, all the garments that they needed. But he refused. Bad idea. In any case, the man knew what was expected and through either apathy or probably, uh, more probably through open rebellion, he came as he was. I don't need your garment. I'm going to come just like I want to come. He was saying that the king was not important to him, the wedding was not important, the son was not important, the occasion or expected decorum was not important. He was all about himself, and he was not subject to the king. Remember, again, he refused the king's provision of the wedding garment. And so in a second act of judgment, remember the first was in verse 7 where he went to the city and killed those murderers and destroyed their city. Here's the second act of judgment. The king commanded his servants in verse number um, 13 to tie up the man and throw him out. Tie up the man and throw him out. Now, at first, that might seem harsh, but consider what he did. He refused to be subject to the king's gracious offer. He had to do nothing other than change his attitude. Uh, The man was thrown into, and he didn't do that. He was refusing what the king was offering. He behaved completely inappropriately in view of what the king had offered to him. So the man is tied up and thrown into outer darkness where it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I've heard this downplayed such that the outer darkness is not that bad. The weeping and gnashing of teeth basically represents some kind of regret at not being in the inner circle or not being on the inside You know, you're on the outside looking in kind of thing. But to the contrary, recognize that this outer darkness is not inner darkness. It's not good darkness. It's not happy darkness. It's far from the light as possible. It's a place of torment, of loss, of punishment. It's not a place of blessing for this man who rebelled against the king. Outer darkness is like the dungeon. The dungeon, only worse. Well, let me touch on a couple of lessons of the parable. Very clearly, we see that the explanation that Jesus gives in verse 14 is tied into this. Many are called, but few are chosen. We've seen this before, haven't we, in Matthew's gospel? Many are called, but few are chosen. Um, The kingdom of heaven is like this wedding feast in this respect. Many are invited to it, but only a few actually are there after all is said and done. The situation is like a sieve or a funnel. A lot of people at the top are narrowed down to a few coming out the other side of this funnel or sieve uh, situation. Many are invited, but coming out of the other end of the invitation process are many fewer than were offered entry. Matthew 7, 13, um, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. And many of those people coming that are invited are shunted off onto this broad way that leads to outer darkness or destruction, the text of Scripture says. Why is this? Why why has this happened? Is there a reason we can discern in the king of the story that would make this the case, this narrowing or filtering? Nothing else has told us about the king, but in the absence of other data, you know, it doesn't say he's a mean and nasty ruler. 
His gracious offer of inviting people to his son's wedding stands open to many. He was willing to invite anyone who would share in his joy in the celebration of his son's wedding. Because the king represents God, we know that there's nothing wrong with the king in the story. Okay, So we can't find, like, the king invited a bunch of people, then he looked at them and said, aha, these are bad fish, just get rid of them. I don't like those people. It's not a, it's not a problem in God that this narrowing occurs. Um, because of the wicked hearts of the people, the field is narrowed from those invited to the fewer number that actually are called in and allowed to remain. There's no evil in the king that causes the narrowing. It is the problem in the recipients of the message that causes the narrowing. Does that make sense? Well, I'm not regarding or, or, or dealing with the doctrine of election right now, okay? We're looking at this from a, from another, a different kind of perspective. Go back and review verses 3 and, and 5 and 6. Some people were not mil- willing Okay, problem in the recipient of the invitation. Some people made light of it. Some people counted their own business more important. Other people killed the messengers. All these are problems in the recipients of the invitation, not in the inviter. In verse 12, we learn of one more bad response when the person had no excuse for refusing the king's gracious provision. In the book of Acts, we read of three responses to the gospel. When Paul preached in Areopagus there in Athens, uh, some believed, others mocked, and others said that they would listen another time. There are other varied responses and excuses that are offered, but those are at least three that we're familiar with. Back up for a second and think of it this way. The invitation to the marriage is exactly like the invitation to participate in the kingdom of heaven. Entry into the wedding is like entry into the kingdom of heaven. And how do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, you're invited and you respond by faith in the Christ. John 3, 3 to 5, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. In order to receive spiritual life, we must believe in Christ. John chapter 3, 16 and the surrounding verses. He also teaches us that we'll have to await his arrival to earth when he will establish the kingdom, in fact, actually. But once we have been born again, we're shoe-ins, I call it, shoe-ins to get into the kingdom. We are actually citizens already and waiting for the kingdom. So receiving the invitation in the wedding of, of the wedding in the story is like embracing Christ by faith in real life. Doing that ensures your participation in eternal life. A wedding, a festive occasion. Why would you not want to go, especially if you're invited to the wedding of the king's son? Furthermore, the invitation of the king amounts to a command for his subjects. Do you think you could really get away with avoiding? the inv- See, the invitation, because of the nature of the person making the invite, becomes a command. You know what I mean? When God invites, it's the same as God commands. It's it's the, you know, it's the will of the authority, which becomes the, the orders from headquarters. The parable is closer to future reality than it may at first appear. This is because when Christ returns, there will in fact be a wedding supper. It's mentioned in Revelation 19, 7 to 9, at which the bride of Christ will be presented to Christ. The bride is the church, 
we understand. So the invitation we Christians offer you is not only to be an observer at the great wedding supper of the king's son, not just to be an observer, but to be a participant. You're in the wedding party if you're part of the church. Do you get that? And where do the people in the wedding party always sit? At the front table. Right. Exactly. Amazing. The garment that was refused by the wrongly attired man at the wedding, this, from my understanding, pictures a garment that we call the robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10. This garb is not a literal white robe, but is rather a, sim- a symbol of imputed righteousness, which is what God gives to every believer the moment they trust in Christ. Now, I think when you When you uh, come with Christ in heaven, you will be wearing a white attire, the book of Revelation says, but it's not that white attire that's the robe of righteousness. That's a a robe which represents that you are cleaned by this robe of righteousness, this imputed righteousness of Christ already, which is what God gives to every believer the moment they trust in Christ. It's this righteousness that outfits us for heaven. It's this garment that we get in exchange for our sin. We take off our sinful, dirty garments. We put on his garment of righteousness. If we reject this, like the man did in the story, we're like Romans 10.3, when Israel went about to achieve their own righteousness, not to, to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Do you see that? If you don't submit yourself to the righteousness of God, you're like the man who has no excuse in the story. You know, you know if you're an Old Testament believer, you cannot achieve righteousness. Give me a break if you think that you can do that. You cannot. You know that it's impossible. Moses couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. None of the good kings of Israel even could do it, not to mention the bad kings. It's impossible. You need the servant to wash away your sin, the one who, Isaiah 53 says, took upon him the sins of us all because we had all gone astray. So we need to be like the Apostle Paul and shun our own righteousness and embrace the righteousness provided by Christ, Philippians 3, 8, and 9. That's a tall order sometimes for us, especially you know when we're... We, we are before coming to Christ in faith, we think we're not too bad. We think we're okay. No problem. I'm a good person. I don't do much bad. But we need to learn that that is completely inex, in, insufficient to come into the wedding of God's kingdom. Otherwise, if we refuse to admit our spiritual poverty and take that gift of God in Christ, we'll be thrown out into outer darkness and misery forever. Now, the many are called and few are chosen verse there in verse 14 is found elsewhere in Scripture. In theology, we call this the difference between the general call and the effective call. Uh, The general call is providential, I say. uh, It happens whenever the gospel is preached. We're doing that right now, whether you know it or not. We're telling you you need to submit to the righteousness of Christ, not be like the man who was utterly speechless and did not have an excuse, but you're the one who recognizes your need, takes that garment, welcomes it from God, and is thus able to enter in in an appropriate attired situation to the, to the wedding in the kingdom of heaven. The command to uh, believe in Christ goes out 
widely, but it's often resisted by people. Uh, That's the the providential general call. It's general, it's broad in its nature as far as its invitation. The effective call is not providential, but supernatural, supernatural. It's when God draws an individual to saving faith in Christ, John 6, 44. No man comes to the Son except the Father draws him. That's what the text of Scripture says, not what Matt Postoff says. In this, the person is not convinced against their will, not like God has to twist somebody's arm to get them to believe in Christ, but by God's grace, the person feels a deep internal desire and compulsion to obey God's invitation. You might remember being in a camp, me in a church, me uh, when, when I was in my home in various church situations, you yourself, when the word of God was being preached and you said to yourself, I have to respond, God is working on my heart. I have to respond. It's the, I know I have to do that kind of feeling. When you know something is the right thing to do, even if it's not what everybody else around you is doing, right? Yes, you know God's Spirit is speaking to me. I am a sinner. I know that. He's right about that. I need to to turn away from myself. I need to respond to the gospel. I need to respond to him in faith. I need to believe him. It is the consequence of a miracle that God works on your heart, a miracle of opening your eyes to the desirability of Jesus, to the desirability of his salvation, to the uh, desirability of new life, of regeneration, of sins forgiven, of freedom from sin. When you see that and you say, man, that's worth everything, I'll take it. I must take it. I, I'm compelled. Not, it's not my arm is twisted. It's that God has opened my eyes so that I see like I have to have that more than I have to have any material possession, more than I've had any you know, desire for something else in my life before. I have to have God. I have to have Christ. We should note that the parable shares a similar judgment theme as the one found in Matthew 21, verse 43, where the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The initial invitees of the king are like the nation, but they will have the kingdom taken away from them. Well, we're over time tonight, and uh, I hope that has been helpful to you. We are... uh, We are called in this uh, kingdom uh, gospel to get rightly related to the king. And uh, I can see why people don't want to respond to the gospel because they don't like God. They don't like his his morality. They don't like his son. They don't want to be part of the marriage thing. They want to go live their own life and, and do their own thing. But please don't do that. It's utter darkness or outer darkness, which is utter darkness, Outer darkness and and weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who refuse the gracious provision of God. But God is very gracious. Even though we have departed from him, he sent messengers after us to invite us to come to the wedding. The basis on which we can come back is, is that his son Jesus the Messiah came and took upon himself the penalty that was due to each one of us. Oddly, we don't see it in this parable, but if you were to, to, to kind of extend the parable back in time a little bit, you'd first have the son dying for the people who refused to come to the wedding. And then 
coming to the point where he had a wedding. That's how it is with Christ in his first coming and then in his second coming. Well, let that sink in if you would please tonight and may it do its good work in your heart as it has in many others over the centuries. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to look at the word and to see a carefully, divinely constructed parable that points out to us the invitation of the gospel and the need to respond lest we suffer the fate like this man who is thrown out into outer darkness or the men who were uh, miserably destroyed and their city destroyed because they abused the servants of the Most High King. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to receive not only the general providential call of the gospel, but to embrace it with the supernatural work of your spirit in our hearts that we would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.